The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Please uh, turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at 1 John over the next few weeks. Uh, 1 John is, an, is a down-home letter. It's a letter that's easy to, to get into and understand and see how all that we sing about, we sing these songs so many times, and I hope they sink into the heart. You understand this substitutionary death of Christ, that he died in our place in order to set us free from the weight of our alienation from God. In 1 John is written by who? Written by the Apostle John, the beloved Apostle. Remember? He's the beloved Apostle. And uh, he is the one who wrote this. We're told in John 13, 23, that, that he himself was called and known as the beloved disciple. John was in his, in his 80s. And uh, he got very weak in his late 80s, and so they, he, he couldn't stand and preach. So they began to carry him into the assembly of, of the church that was meeting where he was part of in Ephesus. And then they would ask him just to give a word of exhortation, encouragement. And he would always say this, little children love one another. Finally, somebody asked him, why is that what you always say? Little children love one another. He said, because it's a command of the master, and if you do that, you've done enough. And you might think, what? I thought there was a whole bunch of other things I was supposed to do. Well, let me tell you, if you get that straight, you'll get everything else straight. If you love God's children, this was the last and great commandment that Jesus gave. I give you a new commandment. This commandment is that you love one another the way I have loved you. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. I hope you see the implication of that. It is, we're not going to be known by the fact that we know theology or that we can pronounce propitiation or something like that. We are known as disciples of Christ when we love each other, when we manifest love towards one another. Uh, I heard a sermon not too long ago called, Love is the Food of Faith. And what he was saying was, this is what builds our faith, is our love for each other. One of the reasons is it's very difficult to love each other. You have to depend on the Spirit, isn't it? don't you? The Spirit's got to empower this in us, that we actually love one another the way Christ loved us. Now, when you see the way Christ loves, you wonder, how in the world can we possibly love like that? He loved to the point of giving himself, giving his life on a cross. That's what he has called us to. You can't do it in your own strength, but this is why he gave you the Holy Spirit, so that you could obey the commands of God in the power of the Spirit. So the author of this little book is the beloved Apostle John, and he wants us to understand some things. And the primary subject of this, the primary subject of this book is fellowship. It's the Lord Jesus Christ and fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father. John says in this book that he wants us to have fullness of joy be through the fellowship we have with each other and with the Father and the Son and through the Son because of what he's done for us. This is what he says the purpose of his writing is, that we would be filled with joy in the fellowship we have with the Father and the Son and with one another. Now, fellowship means uh, that we share something in common. Most of you probably know what joint tenancy is. If you buy a home, 
you and your husband buy a home or you and your wife buy a home, you can get it registered in joint tenancy. That means that it belongs to both of you equally. You own the whole thing. Both of you own the whole thing. If one of you dies, the other doesn't have to pay inheritance tax for that because it's fully theirs. But the idea that John is talking about is that very thing. Koinonia is sharing something in common. We equally share completely the work of Christ and the person of Christ and his relationship with the Father and what he has given to us. And he wants us to actually experience it. It's one thing to know it somewhere back in our head. Maybe we've got a note somewhere that says propitiation means sharing. It means fellowship. We share something in common. But but sometimes it's hard for us to actually experience that, to actually count that to be true in the way we treat one another. Now, when Jesus said, I give you a new commandment, that you would love one another the way I have loved you, that's a huge thing, isn't it? It's something that we can only do if we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. You can't do this apart from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It's easy to withhold love from people because it's costly. But what John is going to say in this book, in the last chapters of the book, is that mature love, love that has come to to maturity, never resists. It goes, it, it keeps moving towards the person. It doesn't pull back. And this love that we are to have for each other is something that is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are loving the way Christ did, loving to the point of self-sacrifice. That's one of the toughest parts about loving people, isn't it? Because it could be very costly to you, <laughs> right? Absolutely. Man, you're quiet. It, it, is, it, is very, it, it does. It's very costly. You can get yourself in situations where you actually manifest love towards someone, and you end up finding out that this is, this is going to cost me something to love this person because of their needs. And I want to help meet their needs. You know, somebody mentioned, I was mentioned in the bulletin that we should pray for uh, Samantha Winters. Samantha Winters is the daughter of the pastor of Souls Harbor. His name is Sam Winters. And they call her Sam, too. But she has a, a serious, serious condition and desperately need, that family desperately needs God to step in and do something to heal this girl, to make her whole, and to give her strength. Uh, This is one of those things I can remember. I was at the hospital when one of Denise's grandsons was in, they went to the hospital, and it turned out he had this condition. And uh, I remember the doctor telling the family, he'll be fine, he'll be okay. Well, he's not okay. It took a toll on his life, and it's had long-term effects. This is a life-threatening kind of condition, and so please pray for her. You can call her Sam. The Lord knows who she is. (laughs) And pray for her, that God would touch her body, and that God would help this family. One of the most difficult things in the world, I am convinced of, is for parents to oversee the struggle of a child as they go through hard times like this. That, she would, that God would just fill her with joy and anticipation of what he's going to do and how he's going to bring her through this. We, and uh, we need to continually pray for each other. The second question he asks here is, what, what occasion this letter? Why did he write this letter? Well, he tells us that he wrote this letter for this reason. What they had heard and seen, that is what, what James and all those, all the witnesses, all the disciples, all the apostles had heard and seen Jesus Christ, our Lord. Remember, they saw him. 
Now, I don't know if you've ever seen him. I doubt if any of you have ever seen him. I had a guy tell me one time he saw Jesus in his hospital room. I don't know if that's true or not. I've never seen him, but I love him. And though I'm not seeing him now, but believing in him, Peter says I can have joy inexpressible and full of glory as a result of faith in him. And so he says that the reason that he, this is why he wrote the letter was because of what they heard and saw in Jesus Christ. They saw Jesus, the Son of God, whom the Father had sent. They became his disciples. Now, you've got to remember, John was one of the younger of the apostles. He was one of the younger of that group that was with Jesus in those early days. And yet he was, he was the apostle that was called the beloved apostle because of his great love for Christ. And uh, he he had a special relationship with him, and all the other apostles knew that, that he loved Christ, and he, was a, he bore witness to Christ. And then the next, the next thing is, what was the center of his message? The center of his message is that Jesus is the word of life. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, it, mean is, it means that he is the one who is going to reveal the true nature of God. He is going sh- to display to people in this earth that he is exposed to, to see him, who God really is. That was the reason that he came. In fact, why don't you turn with me, since you're sitting there so idly, look at uh, Hebrews chapter 1 for just a second. Hebrews chapter 1, this is what the book of Hebrews says. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, he was continually speaking to his people through the prophets. They were continually bringing the news about God, who he was, who he is, what he's going to do, the promises he made. He says, but in these last days, the last days being those days after the cross and after the resurrection and after the ascension to the right hand of the Father, he says, in these last days, he has spoken to us in a son. In fact, the Greek's really interesting because it says he has, speak, he has spoken to us in one such as a son. In other words, it was, it was his nature. This is who he was. He was the very son of God. And you know what it's like to have a son? And he says, he spoke to us in a son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the ages. The reason it's translated he made the world is it's the word ages, but he's talking about the things that exist in during the ages. So all those things that he created, he brought into existence. And he's the one who was the agent of, as he says in John chapter 1, the apostle John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things came into existence through him. And apart from him, nothing came into existence that has come into existence. So this is the agent, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who actually spoke these things into existence. Do you think he can help you? You think he's able to meet your needs? And the, because we're told that he is the one who brought everything into existence. So he says, in these last days, the father has spoken to us in a son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the ages. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Isn't that an astounding statement that he upholds all things in the word of his power? You know what's keeping everything in place? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He holds all things through his power, the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, after he came and made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and he reigns there with the Father, having paid for our sin so that we could come close and to know the living God and be in his presence. 
And so when he came into the world, he came into one of the reasons he came into the world was to unveil who the father was. It's easy to get distorted views of God, isn't it? Have you noticed that? If you talk to people much, you find out that people have some very odd ideas about God and who he is and what his attitude towards you is. But if you go by this book, it tells you exactly what God is like and what his relationship with you is, what it actually is. If you're a Christian or before you're a Christian, he tells you how God has related to us. And he goes on to say he's the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's where he's at. He's seated at the right hand of God on high. And one of these days he's coming back when he comes back to get his people. And this is what it says in 1 Thessalonians. It says when he comes back, the dead in Christ will rise first. He's saying to the people he's writing to were worried that Paul was writing to in Thessalonica. They were worried that they were going to miss out on the coming of Christ because their people started dying. This church came to faith in Christ and was formed. And then they had a death in the, in the family. They thought everybody was going to be alive when Jesus came back. And they couldn't understand that. So Paul explains, the dead in Christ shall rise first. They will not, the living will not pre, precede those believers who had died, but they'll be raised up. And together, along with those who are still living, they'll be caught up to a meeting in the air, and thus they shall always be with the Lord. Now, I'm not trying to tell you which eschatological view you should take. I'm just saying that's what the text says. So that if Christ came tomorrow, we would see him. Our eyes would be open and we would see the living Christ. He is that interested in us that he will take us into his very presence. And then, so, so Jesus came into the world to explain him by his very life. This is what God is like. And when, if you want to know what God is, the Father is like, look at God the Son. He's a picture of the Father. He perfectly portrays him. Why does John refer to Jesus with the words, what? What, if you notice there again, and back in 1 John, he talks about him as though he wants to give a, a physical description of him. He says, what was from the beginning? That is, he's existed from all eternity. Now, the beginning, you wonder, well, how could, he, how could he have existed from, he was already in existence in the, in the beginning. What's the beginning? The beginning is the creation of all things. You go back and read Genesis chapter 1, and then we read John we read John chapter 1, it tells us that the Son was the one who was there with the Father, and he spoke everything into existence. Do you think he knows how to take care of you? Do you think he knows about you? Do you think he knows and understands the things that you face that seem absolutely impossible? This is the one who spoke all things into existence, and they exist through him. And not only that, he's the sustainer of all things. He's sustaining you. Some of you feel like you're about the end of yourself. Sometimes we get like that, don't we? I don't think I can go much longer. No, let me tell you, you have a God in heaven. You have a Father in heaven and the Son with him at his right hand who is keeping his hand upon you. It's to him that we are to, to rest our faith and our trust. That's what we're told to do. Well, Jesus is referred this way, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen, because he's, he's drawing together two things. He's drawing together the person of Christ and his very nature. He's existed from all eternity. Well, that sounds impossible. Do you remember you've seen the little baby Jesus? You've seen these pictures. How could he have existed from all eternity? That's what the Bible says. 
It says he has been with the Father from eternity. And then he came into this world. And so John, when he describes him, he says, what was from the beginning? There was never a time when he did not exist. But he came into this world, why? To save you. Isn't that amazing? Have you told anybody that lately? Have you talked to anybody and you said to them, you know, God sent his son to die so that you could have a relationship with him? Turn to John chapter 5, for just 1 John chapter 5. And notice verse 9, first of all, when he says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. You know what that means. He says, because the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. You're probably not aware of it, but the way you came to faith in Christ is somebody told you the testimony of God about his son, and you believed it. And when you trusted him, because of God the Father's testimony about him, you came into a relationship with the Father. He says, the one who believes the Son has, the Son of God has the testimony in himself. That is, he has God's testimony himself. That This is eternal life, the very Son of God. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. All he means by that is, you're treating him as though he's a liar. He's made you so many promises. He's, he has promised us so many things. He's promised to be with us. I will never leave you or forsake you. I'll go with you to the very end. That's the Father's promise to us. And he says, uh, God has witnessed concerning his son. Why do I believe the gospel? Because the Father gave this testimony. He said when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, it was an act of cleansing to introduce him to the nation of Israel. This is the Messiah. And the Father speaks from heaven, and the people hear his voice. Now, they didn't know what to think of it. But what the father said was, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. See, he didn't, he didn't send riffraff down here. He sent the living son of God, his beloved son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, his monogamous son, which means his one of a kind son. There's not another one like him. Now, all of us who are believers here are sons of God. But the Son of God, who is a one-of-a-kind God, he is the one who is unique. He is the one who's been with the Father from all eternity. And the Father sent him so that you could come to know the Father. And sometimes I wonder, why? Why would knowing us be so important to him and us knowing him? Why is that so important to him? Well, you have to understand love. You have to understand the love of God. The love of God is amazing and that he would set his he would set his affection upon us and that he would act in order to fulfill his love for us. He sends his only son. And then he goes on to tell us this eternal, the reason that he gave Jesus eternal life was as a possession so that he could give it to us. It's kind of like, uh, you know, it is if you have a big file on your computer and you want to send it to somebody. The other day I was trying to send a, a video of a sermon to a pastor friend of mine. And I put it all on there, but then it came back and it says the, the, the file is too large. It can't be mailed. Well, how in the world did, would God ever get eternal life down to you? He couldn't do it through the Internet. He had to do it through a person. And that person came into the world. And when you believed on Christ, your kinsman redeemer, you received life from him. He gave you eternal life. Now, remember what's so important about eternal life? John 17, 3. 
What is John 7? There, Jesus tells us the purpose of eternal life. This is the purpose of eternal life. What is it? That you might know God and, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. He wants you to know him. And so he gave you eternal life. Now, most of us think he gave us eternal life because he wants us to live forever. And some people say, well, boy, that wouldn't be a very good thing for you to live forever. Well, that's, that's one benefit of eternal life. But the other benefit is we come to know God. We can actually know God. You can, you're on speaking terms with God. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing that you're on speaking terms with God. I can come to you and say, hey, would you please pray for me? Would you ask the Lord this and that and the other thing? Because you have access to God. Every believer, every single believer in the church of Jesus Christ has access to the living God. He hears their voice. He responds to their call. And so this is why he has given us eternal life, so that we could do that. And then he says, based on that, because we've received this eternal life, he says, love one another. You know, why should I love Dewey? Because he has eternal life in him. He has the very life of God in him. And he's my brother. And so what God does is he says that we should love the children. We should love one another because he has given to us eternal life. And so the people that we love in the body of Christ, they are people who are worthy of loving because of what God has done to their lives, what he has done to them, what he has given them and what, how their lives are going to go and how they're going to end. The Bible says that he has chosen a path for you. He has actually predestined you, which just means he's planned the trip. Where am I going to end up? You're going to end up where he has chosen to take you because he has got it planned. He knows exactly how he's going to get you there. He's going to get you into the presence of the living God. Isn't that something? That you're going to live in the presence of the living God because he has given you eternal life so that you would know him. Just imagine, have you ever gone to a, a place where they don't speak your language? They don't understand your language, and so you have a hard time communicating? I, I was talking to a guy the other day down in Brentwood, and I started talking to him, and then he let me know he didn't understand because he spoke Spanish. Well, I started speaking to him in Spanish. I know four words. Como esta usted? You know? And he said, that's not bad, that's not bad. <laughs> So he knew a few little English words. But you know what it's like if you get among people that you can't speak their language. There's a, di there's a distance. In fact, we're told in 1 Corinthians 14, in the early church, when the gift of tongues was being given, he says that if you have the gift of tongues, you have the gift of tongues, you should not. And, but there, was, there had to be an interpreter if you spoke in tongues in a meeting of believers. And he says, if there's no interpreter, then be quiet because they can't understand what you're saying. You've all noticed that, haven't you? When somebody speaks another language that you don't know, you can't understand what they're saying, right? That's how it is. Well, he speaks to us in the inner man, and we understand him. We understand exactly what the Father is saying, and he has spoken to us in his word. Isn't it an amazing thing? We live in a time when the Bible has been translated into English. In fact, in various translations, that we can understand the very word of God. And so we are to... The reason he's speaking to him about what was from the beginning and so forth, he's going to talk to him about who he is because he not only wants to, us to know what his nature is, that this is, this is the Son of God who has, who has lived from all eternity, but he also 
is the Son of God whom the Father loves. And because of the Father loves him, he has done what he's done in your life. He's brought you to faith in him. So he wanted to get to the heart of the nature and identity of Jesus Christ. You can worship Christ. You know, you don't, when you pray to Christ, you don't say, Hi, hello, buddy. Good to talk to you today. You don't do that. You say, Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for what you were willing to do for me. That you came into this world and you stood in my place and you paid my debt that I had before God. You made me whole and you live in me every day and you manifest your presence and your power in my life on a daily basis. See, we can talk to the Lord Jesus. Uh, the Father and the Son are both multilingual. They understand every language. They understand the heart. They understand before you speak. And so we can communicate with them. So we go to the Father and we pray in Jesus' name. And Jesus is able to get us access to the Father. And we can actually let him know our needs and our desires and our love for him. There's a, a beautiful passage in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. It says, even though you have not seen him, you love him. Isn't that weird that you love Christ and you've never seen him? Oh, I know you've seen some pictures, but none of those pictures probably are going to do, are going to be close. Jesus, as best we would think, is a Jewish man. He was probably about five foot eight. And uh, the only reason he, it shows him with long hair is because that's what somebody thought. Because Jesus wasn't a Nazarite. He didn't take a Nazarite vow. But some artists put long hair on him, and he's, now he appears with long hair every time you see him in these paintings, these pictures. We don't know exactly what he looks like, but we know that he's the Lord of glory, that he's the Lord who came into this world and stood in our place and paid the penalty for our sins. He did everything necessary for, to get us set free. And so uh, this is why Jesus, this is why the, James, the apostle, wanted us to come to know him. This is what this book is all about. It's coming to know Jesus Christ and the fellowship we have with him and through him with the Father and with his people. And then how does John describe Jesus here? Well, notice these things. First of all, what was, he is what was from the beginning. So he's eternal. He's eternal. One of the biggest heresies in the church were taking place when this book was written. In fact, one of the reasons this book was written, this letter was written, because there were men coming into churches and telling them, Jesus isn't like you think he is. There may not even be a Jesus. And he didn't do what you have heard that he has done. These were Gnostics, and they wanted people to know that they knew things better than they did. And they were trying to undermine their faith. Could anybody undermine your faith about Christ? I hope not. If you have truly put your faith in Christ, that you are confident of what you have trust, who you have trusted, and who you put your trust in, they wouldn't be able to do that to you. But that's exactly what was going on. And so he says, "What was from the beginning?" They didn't believe this. This is what it was. The it was a precursor to Jehovah's Witnesses. They they don't believe that Jesus is God. They're Arians. They believe there's no such thing as that. The Father simply chose God chose a man, just a normal man. And so he found him and he started calling him the son of God. And then secondly, what we have heard, what we have heard, John says, we heard him. It wasn't rumors about him that we believed. It was the words of Jesus. It was what he said to us. We heard him. 
Now, none of us are in that group. We weren't apostles. We didn't, we didn't go into a room along with Jesus and he begins to talk to us. But he's given us his word, the word of God, and we know what he said. In fact, he told his apostles, he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send a helper who's going to come and he's going to empower you to remember everything I told you. I don't know about you, but I got a lousy memory. Could you, could you imagine writing the books that we have in the New Testament that tell us what Jesus said, like the Gospels, the four Gospels? How could they remember this stuff? One of the examples of that is, is John 7, 37 and 8, when Jesus was at the Feast of Tabernacles. What this was about, this was a celebration of God's faithfulness to the people of Israel as he took them through the wilderness journey for 40 years. He supplied all their food. He supplied everything they needed. The two great things that were so important, he supplied water. Now, if you've ever walked through a desert, you know how important water would be. He takes a million people on a 40-year journey in the desert, and he supplied them with water. And so they would have this water celebration. And the way they did it was the priests came out in their priestly robes, and they took a golden pitcher. They scooped a pitcher of water out of the pool of Siloam, the pool of Siloam. Siloam means sent one. So it's, this, it's the pool of the sent one. Well, who's that? Who did God send? He sent the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, they would scoop out a pitcher of water, and then they would make a procession back to the temple and pour it out next to the altar. It was a celebration that God supplied them everything they needed. And then they had another celebration for the light. Remember the light, the Shekinah glory? How would you get people to know where they should be going? You know, that'd be something, you know, send the people on a trip, and you say, yeah, it's out there. Just start heading that way. And you get out there, and you're in the middle of the desert. But what God did is he was with them. And he showed that he was with them by what's called the Shekinah. It was the manifest presence of God in something. And when, when God manifests his presence in the fire, the pillar of fire, it was called by the Hebrews, although it's not in the Bible, it was called Shekinah. It was the very presence of God, the manifest presence of God, so they would know who to follow. They followed his leading. And so as the, as the pillar of fire moved, as the pillar of cloud moved, they would follow that. And so, so they celebrated it. And then they, celebrated, they had a second celebration was to celebrate this, this Shekinah and the, the light that God manifested in their presence. And what they did was they weren't, these are not modern people. These aren't people that had huge uh, probe lights and all that. They didn't have these wonderful modern lights like in here. They have the little fans in them, you know. But they, uh, what they did was they made a candelabra that was so massive it wouldn't fit in this room. You know what a candelabra is? A, a candlestick with all these huge candles on it. When they lit those candles, it would light up the entire town, the city of Jerusalem when they celebrated. And it was simply to celebrate the fact that God had been faithful. You know, that's a good thing to do. You may not want to keep the Jewish festivals and so forth, but you know, it'd be a good thing for you to give praise to God for what he has done for you. If you were to take a piece of paper and write down on a piece of paper, these are the things that Jesus Christ has done for me in my life. And you wrote those down. You ought to have a way of expressing your gratitude and your thanksgiving. He's been good to us, hasn't he? He's been glorious to us. And so we, we have heard him. We actually heard him speak as he told us about these things. What I was going to say is Jesus spoke on this occasion, John 7, 38. He says, Right, because the, the, the festival would last eight days. 
Seven days was all these things, and on the eighth day, it was a, they, did, they didn't do the water or the candelabra. And on the eighth day, Jesus, the great day of the feast, Jesus cries out. It, it says cries out. That means he shouted. He said real loud because there was no, oh, there was no sound system. And Jesus shouts out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who is believing in me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, that made perfect sense in light of what they were celebrating. They were celebrating God feeding people, giving people water who were out in a dry, dry desert. Two million of them marching and moving and God supplied for them. So Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come to me. He who is believing in me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But get this, John, the apostle who was writing the letter, the Holy Spirit reminded him of that. And that's why he included it. And then he says in his notes, if you read through John 7, 37, 38, it says, John said, as John says, he, he makes a little comment. He says, he was speaking about the Holy Spirit who had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. You're all aware that the Bible says that the Spirit was poured out after Jesus was glorified, after he was ascended to the Father, and then he poured out the Spirit. And so since that time, since the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, every person who puts their faith in Christ received the Holy Spirit. Now, it's true, you'll find groups that say you didn't receive the Spirit, you need, a, you need another experience, you need another um, some kind of a blessing so that you'll receive the Spirit. But what the Bible says, Romans 8, verses 9 and 10 says this. It says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if it's true that the Spirit of God dwells in you. But, he says, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't belong to him. You don't belong to Christ. So every single believer, without exception, has the Holy Spirit. That's what makes you a believer. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. And so John said, when he said that at this festival, it was because the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now he's glorified. And all of you who have put your faith in Christ have received the Spirit. And as Peter says, you also have a spiritual gift because you have the Spirit. As each one of you has received a gift, 1 Peter chapter 4, Use it as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. In other words, God wants you to count to be true what his word says about what he's done for you. You could almost make a rhyme out of that, huh? And then what we have seen with our eyes. They looked at Jesus. Can you imagine that? Looking at Jesus. But notice this, what we have touched with our hands. Now, in chapter 20 of, of John, it tells us about doubting Thomas. Do you remember doubting Thomas? He showed up with this meeting of the apostles, and they were talking about how Jesus had been raised from the dead. And, and so Thomas says to them, I could never believe that unless I saw him myself and put my hands on him, touched him. And so a while later, he shows up, and Jesus is there. And Jesus says to him, Thomas, come here. Touch my hands. Put your finger in the holes of my hands. Touch my side. Put your hand in the, in the hole in my side. You see, he, he was willing for them to be absolutely certain of what he had done for them. It's, it cracks me up if I ever I meet somebody and they say, yeah, well, I, I wouldn't mind being a Christian, but I can't believe that stuff about Jesus being raised from the dead. Well, let me tell you, you've got to believe that because that's right at the center of the truth of Christianity. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then we still are in our sins. That's the words of 
the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, we're still in our sins. But we believe he is raised from the dead, that he has been raised from the dead, and we have trusted him. And then the word of life, he's called the word of life because he came to reveal the Father and make him known. That's what we saw in Hebrews. And then the sixth thing is he is the manifestation and explanation of eternal life. He's the eternal life. First John 5, as I mentioned a while ago, this, this eternal life that he's given us was given to us so that we could experience eternal life. So we could experience eternal life. And if you ask me, well, how do you experience eternal life? I don't fly. I don't, uh, I don't do something. I don't perform miracles. But what happens is, because I have eternal life, I can talk to the Father and know he hears me. I can talk to the Son and know that he hears me. I can read his word and know he's speaking to me because I have eternal life. And that's what Jesus said. This is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God. He doesn't say know about you. you guys, do you guys know about uh, President Trump? Sure, you know about him, but none of you know him, I don't think. It, knowing someone is different than knowing about them, isn't it? And so what God did, he says, I want eternal life to reside in you so that you will know me. You will know me. You will experience me. It's talking about experiential, personal knowledge. I, I, was, I got a kick out of this little book called Spiritual Knowledge written by Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee was a Chinese preacher and Bible teacher back in the 20s. And he wrote this little book called Spiritual Knowledge, and he talked about two kinds of knowledge as a Christian. We have biblical knowledge. We study the Bible. We learn things from the Bible. And then we have spiritual knowledge, which he says comes from being dealt with by God. We find out how God responds to us. We get in situations, we ask him, we cry out to him for help, and he helps us. We come to know who he is by the way that he treats us. Isn't that how it happens in life? You know, you, you have children and you raise them and then you experience the relationship and you come to know things about them. You understand them. You understand the kind of person they are. Well, God says, I want you to understand the kind of person I am. I want you to have a relationship with me. So I'm going to give you eternal life when you believe on Christ. So he gives, he gives Jesus, he puts eternal life in Jesus. This is the record. A bunch of people know this passage. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, 12. This is the testimony, is what he's saying. This is the testimony of God, that he has given to us eternal life. Really? Yeah. This life is in his Son, and whoever has received the Son has the life. You have eternal life if you have received Christ. That's pretty simple, isn't it? That's a promise. That's a glorious promise. It's simple, but it's totally profound that I'm living with eternal life. Isn't that amazing? Now, what Paul is going to emphasize in this book, he says, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship. Fellowship is the purpose of this book. You're going to read about fellowship all over the place in here. He wants you to have fellowship with him. But here's the problem. How can God, a holy, righteous God, I mean completely righteous God, how can he have a fellowship with sinners like us? I don't mean you're not unsaved. I mean, I'm not saying you're unsaved. I'm saying you still have sin in you. And you, and you may think, well, you've got your nerve. Well, that's what the Bible says. 
He goes on in this book and he's going to say, if you say you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself and the truth's not in you. If you say that you haven't committed any sins, you're a liar and the truth's not in you. But if you confess your sins as a believer, he is faithful and righteous to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And we saw what he said in chapter 2. I'm writing these things to you that you don't sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Somebody asked me about that because it sounded a little odd to them that at the same time I'm sinning, I have an advocate with the Father because that's the implication of that, that verse. But he's not saying, hey, this is cheap grace. It doesn't matter what you do. Do whatever you want to do. It doesn't matter to the Father. Oh, let me tell you, this father spanks his children when they need it. I think I'm that kind of a father, but I'm not sure. But this is what he does. He disciplines his children because he loves them. But he also provides an advocate. Even when I sin against him, there's an advocate standing by ready to defend me. He is my defense. I have believed on him. I don't, I don't continue to have eternal life because I am perfect. I continue to have eternal life because I have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And so that's what we're going to learn about in this book, about fellowship. Next week, we'll look at the last part of verse 1, and it tells us how people like us can have fellowship with God. How is that even possible? I mean, I, I know people that wouldn't have a thing to do with me. Don't you? If you don't know anybody like that, let me tell you about them. No. <laughs> you know, it's like, and God says, I want to have fellowship with you. Why? Because we belong to him. We are his. We are his children. And, he, and his son is the firstborn among many brethren. And so he has made us his children. He is prejudiced towards us. He loves us. He blesses us. And he wants us to know it. Isn't that something? He wants us to know it. He doesn't give you secret little presents that you don't know. You don't have any idea where this came from. He tells you exactly what he wants to give you and what he gives you through faith. So that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at fellowship, what it means to have fellowship. And, you know, that's what the, the local church, the word church, the original word church uh, that was used, really referred to our, the fact that we are a fellowship of believers. We're a fellowship of believers. We share our lives with each other. Remember how the early church was? If anybody had a need, the, ch the church family would meet it. Isn't that amazing? That's over the top, isn't it? But that's what God does. He burdens your heart to do that very thing, to meet the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ. So I, I hope that this message comes through clear, clear from, the, from 1 John, that this is the fellowship that we have with Christ. Why did John proclaim the gospel? He says, these things we write so that you, our joy may be made complete. You notice he didn't say your joy, he said our joy. He says yours and ours is what he's saying. You ever, you ever get, have joy when somebody comes to faith in Christ? Oh, yeah. I've seen people just laugh and, and have a wonderful time simply because somebody has rested their faith in Jesus Christ that they've been praying for. And that's why he's done this. And in 1 Peter 1, it says, though you haven't seen him, you love him, and though you're not seeing him now but believing in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. See, we've been given eternal life. Eternal life. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.